You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, we are sharing with you conversations with five spiritual entrepreneurs who were awarded the 2021 Tom Locke Innovative Leader Award from the Wesleyan Investive. For more information, visit award.wesleyaninvestive.org. Hey, everybody. Glad you've joined us. I'm Lisa Greenwood with Casper Turkile. Hey, Casper. Hey, Lisa. So our conversations with the Locke Innovative Leader Award winners continues today with Matt Russell. And I should say for the audience, if you want to know more about the award, I'd invite you to listen to our first episode in the series or check out our website. All the information is in the show notes as well. This conversation with Matt was just stunning. And for those of you who don't know, Matt is on staff at Chapelwood United Methodist Church in Houston, Texas, and he's the executive director of Iconoclast Artists and co-managing director of Project Curate. So he's a pastor, an entrepreneur, an activist, an academic, a teacher, and just a wonderful, wonderful human. And there were so many themes that came through in this conversation, but the one that's really sticking with me is the way in which Matt continually centers these improbable friendships. Like in every project that he has, he's building collaborations, he's seeking out people who you would not on the face of it think are going to be co-creators for what he's doing. And and they totally shape what his ministry has looked like. And I loved hearing him talk about that. Yeah, I did too. And, um, and, and what we've seen in Matt is that his most generative work comes out of those relationships. And he knows it, and he claims it, and he leans into it. So I love that. And I want to know how to do that. So I kept asking him how, and you'll hear him talk about this really important value of curiosity. That's something that comes through in him all the time. And you'll hear some great stories about what that's looked like and what that's led to. But he, you know, he also spoke really honestly about some of the challenges. And Lisa, you know more about this than I do, but what stood out to you for that? Yeah. So that's the other thing I was thinking about is he talks about that strong gravitational pull of the inherited church and its expectations on leaders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hang on to the end, folks, because it's really good as he challenges the church's notions about leadership. Yeah, that's right. And it's fun to hear Matt draw on all of these different thinkers and theologians. You know, he's, (laughs) he's such a PhD brain with such a loving heart. And he mentions the Clapham sect, who I'm a little bit familiar with, but just in case it's new to you, it was a group of Church of England social reformers based in London. Clapham is actually where I was born. And it was an abolitionist-oriented kind of social justice movement in the UK that clearly was inspiring to Matt, next to, you know, hip-hop and, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So you should enjoy this if you like good quotes. Matt will give you a couple. So enjoy this conversation with Matt Russell. We're so thrilled that he is one of our awardees. And uh, thanks for listening. Hey, Matt, thank you for joining us. We're so glad you're here. It's an honor to be here, Lisa. It really is. So we want to start just by hearing a little bit of your story. And I know that's a big question. So we've narrowed it down a little bit by saying, what are some significant encounters or events that have shaped you and brought you to this place in your life? Hmm. That's a great question. You know, the first event that kind of comes to mind, or at least a segment of that, is really my mother and the influence that she had on me as a young boy in terms of faith. She came to faith later in 
I say later in her life, it was, I was a young boy. So she had not grown up in a home of faith really. And so when she became a Christian and started reading the New Testament, she just kind of took to it in a way that makes sense to me, but was really countered to the religious structures that were around us. Mm. And maybe because it had not been interpreted for her culturally in particular ways. And so they became Christians. We started going to a Methodist church in Dallas and Carrollton. And she started volunteering at a halfway house in downtown Dallas. And so my brother, sister, and I, when we were, I must have been between the age of maybe six or seven up to about nine years old, every Sunday we would go down there. And we would spend hours just cooking meals and hanging out with people. And, you know, and and I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a transitional home for women coming off the street Mm -hmm. who were also experiencing prostitution and drug addiction. And then there was a whole other side of another house that was a couple um, houses away that was a men's house. And they would come together on Sundays afternoon for a meal. And so I've got these pictures. This is totally in the 70s, which has given my age away. But um, <laughs> there's uh, of these, like these, these like like recovering drug addicts with this, you know, kind of long string. They're all looking like they stepped out of some kind of you know 70s band with uh, bell bottoms and and corduroys and just non matching. You know, everything was flammable and. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm standing and I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm next to all these folks by a van, you know, <laughs> and we got pictures of this. And but what was amazing about that, that it was just so formative to me because it was one, it was like it's what we did after church, you know. And in fact, the days we didn't go to church, we always went downtown and we always hung out with these folks. And these folks became um particularly in my own consciousness and story, people that I've been in dialogue with really since I can remember. I'm, I'm always wondering, is there a place at the table for those folks? And when I got baptized as a kid, they came and participated oh, in my baptism. I love that. And so I know it's, just, it's crazy, you know? And I think about how that has formed my psyche and really kind of who I'm in dialogue with in terms of my own interior world, so... I love that, Matt, because it is such a snapshot right there of how the the gospel message was formed for you and really got to be a part of your your bones, you know, that made you who you are as you live as a pastor today. I love yeah. that. So I think faith early on has always been a verb for me. It's not in a stated sense of kind of propositional statements that I have to polish and get right. Um, I'm not so sure about the propositional, all the propositional statements anymore. I am sure about the verb. I am sure that it moves me into solidarity and into relationship. So, yeah. Well, we also want to hear the story of how Project Curate came to be. So in some ways it feels like a natural segue, given the fact that you're talking about faith as a verb. Tell us about that. I mean, as most things, kind of, it was happenstance in some ways. I'd, I'd gone and done a PhD really to study some women that were at Mercy Street, a church that I was a part of for years, and came back, did a postdoc overseas, and then came back and was working at a seminary and realized that really I wasn't an academic. I'm really an activist with a nerd itch to read a lot, you know, and to, <laughs> to think, and that I needed to be closer to the smell of, of bodies than uh, the, the smell of ideas. 
But while I was at the seminary, I was able to think through some ideas about ways that theological education was happening, where it belonged. Uh, I think some of the ways that we've put theological, we've reified it and said, hey, go through your, you know, your high school, then undergraduate. And if you can get through this, then we'll offer you these theological truths. And so in so many ways, it's classist, it's hierarchically bound, it is absolutely privileged. And we say it's really specialized for people that have a type of intellectual pedigree and, and credentialing. You know, I just think that's crap. And I think it's antithetical to the gospel. And I think Jesus would be absolutely embarrassed by it. And I guarantee you, Jesus would not have gone to seminary. Right. And so part of that is the reclamation of these truths that not are not to be only held in an intellectual space, but are to be discovered as we work out our faith with fear and trembling in the very contours of justice, of work among equity, of relationships that should not exist, but then do exist. And so when I got back from this postdoc in England, uh, ended up coming back to a church and working in a local congregation. Somebody from the United Methodist office called me and asked me what I was going to do with this idea that they heard about. And I said, well, it's dead. I, you know, <laughs> I'm doing these things now and I don't know. And she said to me, she was on the cabinet, Diane McGee. She said, if we could go after a grant from you know, one of the agencies, could we do this here, this idea here? And I was like, yeah, let's try it. And so we wrote a grant together and that really birthed this, this entity called Project Curate, which is really about creating bridges across the divides in the city of Houston, thinking through really deep theological, but also practical social issues as they relate to kind of being formed and, and being reformed in this kind of new humanity that I think is present in the gospel and so we began with a cohorted model that we would have, I think our first year we had maybe five or eight churches from all over the city, African-American, Asian-American, white churches, Latinx churches that were involved. And we would come together uh, once a month for a teaching. We would come together another time the second month and we would do some type of training together around community organizing. And then the third time we would come together would be around a pilgrimage, taking some of the work that came out of South Africa and realizing there that most of us had never been into each other's neighborhoods. Most of our relationships really in, in the city of Houston were really kind of bifurcated because of highways and architecture and access and that's where I began to think a lot about network theory and the gospel more as networked than it is anything else. And that the places where it shouldn't exist and these connections that shouldn't be made are often the places that have the most juice and the most energy. And then like something goes and kind of, kind of blossoms out and you go, well, I didn't even expecting that. Right. Because it kind of moves beyond our own yeah. systems of control, you know? So yeah. Project here, it was birthed out of that. We, we held two or three cohorts. Um, the first cohort, we were, I, I really am a, a fan of The Wire, which is an HBO special that looks at the city of Baltimore. And so I thought, man, if I could teach theology, like The Wire teaches um, sociology and, and kind of city planning, I would do that. So we decided to break and The, the Wire. Um, <laughs> this is now a show about The Wire, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the Wire looks at the city of Baltimore through the lens of drug addiction. It looks through the lens of blue-collar workers in an industry that's kind of going away. It looks through, the, through public education, through the media, through politics. And I thought, what if we looked at the city of Houston through the lenses of the first one was immigration migration? 
And we looked at what does it mean to be an immigrant and to immigrate here. Uh, little did I know at the time, we started it when all the unaccompanied minors were just flooding over. And so we, we had just one, we had a bunch of Latinx um, communities that were involved and were really teaching us because they were the expert witnesses. They were the experts about immigration migration. And so we would, we really were privileging people in those spaces who held really the expertise in their own bodies and stories rather than in their own minds from a distance. The second year we looked at the city through incarceration and return. Houston has uh, one of the highest return rates of any prisoners in the country that come back to Houston, Texas. And the church does a little about that. So at the end of that year, we held a citywide conference. Uh, it ended up being a statewide conference and folks from Cambridge University, their criminology came over. We had state senators there. We had folks from both parties that were there. We had a bunch of returning citizens that were emerging out of uh, incarceration that were reintegrating. And we had a massive conference. And at the end of that, judges got together and they created the specialty court that was now servicing folks that are returning from prison that are parolees to help them kind of navigate. Because often, once you break parole a couple of times, you're sent back to prison. What they want to acknowledge is that most of these men and women have been deeply institutionalized and their agency has been stripped. And so then to just give that back without any shepherding is a type of, I think, kind of social malpractice. And so some neat things came out of that. Then I met, I met some folks out of the Alton Sterling and death and Philando Castillo who came. We were doing a, a vigil for those deaths. And some folks from Black Lives Matter Houston, Texas, came and did a vigil at the church I was at at St. Paul's. And I felt like it was really important. Um, they wanted to host it at St. Paul's, but I kind of felt like it was really important that white folks didn't have a lot to say. Because often when tragedy like that happens, it's the way sometimes whiteness works mm. is we can get real into kumbaya and we want to grab hands and start swaying and say, I'm not a racist and we shall overcome when I don't know what it's had to be overcome. Right. I don't know what it feels like to be in a body other than, you know, being a white middle-class guy. And so um, what came out of that was just like this, it broke me open. It just, it wrecked me. And I realized at that point that I had the right intuition about where Project Curate needed to go to get it going, but I couldn't get us there because I was just, I was so encased within my own racist horizons that I'd been formed both in the church and outside of the church and my own theological constructs that were really rooted within kind of European constructs of who God mm -hmm. is and what power looked like. And so having met these folks, I just, I went to them and said, uh, actually with with a gentleman named Cleve Tinsley. And he and I talked for a long time. He'd given up on the church. He had said, I don't think that's true. <laughs> when you talk to him, he's just amazing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he gave up on the same church I gave up on, right? And so we wondered together if there was a possibility of actually constructing a relationship that might bear witness to a way forward. And it's what I've been calling for a couple of years improbable friendships friendships that should not exist, that make no sense, that there's not, there's not value outside of there being a deep sense of kenotic self-love and giving, and hopefully something is birthed out of that that would not exist. I really think that's the hope of the world. I want to ask you about those improbable friendships, Matt, because everything that I've read about you is 
built on those improbable friendships, right? The projects that you've co-created, the questions you've asked have been informed because you've been in those relationships. And I'm curious for you, like what draws you to those relationships? Because it is much easier to stay with the folks that we know, to do the things that we can be good at and excel in. Like we're constantly risking looking foolish, hurting people, right? Like there's so many ways those friendships can go wrong. What draws you there and what keeps you there? Yeah. Because I see all the time that that's the most generative place for, for your ministry. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. I mean, it's like food. The best food is stuff that's drawn from all over the world, right? I mean, mm. why Tex-Mex is the best food in the world. I mean, you've, you've got to... <laughs> <laughs> you've got you've got all these kind of like you're you're basically what the hip hop community calls sampling, mm-hmm. right? So nothing's original, but when you sample it all, it's all original, right? That's right. But it needs what you bring, but it's not solely dependent on it, right? Does that make sense? And so there's something totally. about that in terms of even that hip hop idea of sampling that you think, oh, I've got something, but it's just it's this, it's so small. And that's so important because you're not stepping into those relationships completely uh, emptying yourself, right? You're, you're not coming into them saying, I have nothing to offer because then frankly, who wants to be in relationship with you? Like you're, you're bringing something. Yeah. So, but, but how do you do it? How do you then like bring the bit that you have and let it merge and, and be sampled together with what those other folks have? Yeah. Because from the outside, you could look at, you know, a young Syrian refugee who doesn't speak English and be like, oh, well, that's a sad story, or I need to serve this person. But you're thinking, how can I co-create something with this young oh, absolutely. man? Absolutely. Service is such a dead end. Mm-hmm. And the way that we've conceptualized service in Christianity is why we have so many problems. Because mm-hmm. what we've, uh, I, I mean, I mean, maybe some problems, maybe not all the problems. <laughs> but service, as Father Gregory Boyle might say, puts us into the hallway. But what it is to lead to is a deep, exquisite mutuality, right? This deep sense of this new humanity that Jesus talks about, mm. right? And some of that might just be because I hung out with folks, you know, I'm just thinking back about the bell bottoms and like, that was just like home. It was like <laughs> dudes that have track marks that have more to teach me about Jesus than my Sunday school class teacher did at that time. They're, that just makes sense to me. And, and most of the best music in the world is done through bringing parts that shouldn't exist, instruments that don't make sense. And you bring those things together in a way that you're creating a whole new genre, a whole new sound that then is mm. just, it makes you laugh or cry or angry or rise up or it puts you to sleep, but it evokes something. And I think that, that the core of Christianity is relationships, yeah. right? I mean, Paul, I mean, I'm a, I, I want to, that's just in me. It's neither Greek nor Jew nor, you know, it's like none of that. Those things are important. It's not as if it's, you know, that colorblindness kind of crap. I'm not mm-hmm. talking, I'm saying that there's distinct things that we bring, but all of those dividing walls at some point are either broken down or they're not. We either believe that or we don't. Mm-hmm. Right? We either are invested in self-preservation in ways of kind of promulgating my own sense of identity, or we actually follow Jesus into the world, this man who had no reputation. So why should I give a crap about the church's reputation for the one who had no reputation? (laughs) We go through the world and we stand with people in those places, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of the issue we have now is we're trying to keep the reputation of the church intact with a man who had no reputation, was killed because of his lack of reputation. Mm -hmm. 
You guys get me all excited here. I know. I love it. I love it. And and so here's the thing, like, and, and you're doing it right now. You're drawing us in to being in your presence and this sense that improbable friendships are, they're the way, they're what matters. And yes. okay, so you not only live that, Matt, like you are constantly inviting others into that. Hmm. That's not everybody's natural tendency like it is yours, where you just, you know, you're eating up the Tex-Mex and wanting more or the sampling and you're wanting more. Like there are some that really struggle. So I'm just interested as you have invited others Mm. into improbable friendships, where you have met resistance, what that looks like, how you navigate that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. I think in some ways, one of the things I've become convinced of is like one of the most important spiritual disciplines uh, of the moment that we're in, of the season that we're in, is a spiritual discipline of curiosity. That we have just lost the discipline of being curious. And so I think all friendship starts with a curiosity, a deep wondering, a deep like, I wonder how that works. I wonder how that person understands the world. I wonder how they were formed, right? Mm -hmm. And I think part of um, improbable friendship, the juice of it, the bedrock of it, is just this constant curiosity about like what will happen, you know, because you don't know what will happen in friendships. And so some of it is that then it has to move not at the pace of strategic design. It has to move at the pace of guidance. Um, and so all pro- improbable friendships move at the pace of guidance. It's not an agenda. It's a guidance of, of relationship that are moving together, right? And maybe as more people come on to those things, there's more affordances of what might happen. But I really think that they go slow. It's not a fast thing. They have to have skin in the game, particularly people that are showing up with privileged skin. They have a lot more to give up and a lot more to let go of in terms of trust, in terms of when the stuff hits the fan, are they going to stick? These are the things that I think the black church has much more to tell us about the future of the church than any other sector, you know, in terms of how you hold together both deep pain and joy, how you continue to stand against injustice and continue to do that with a deep spiritual center. And so I think because if that's true, then I've got to be around where that's truth. I can read Ta-Nehisi Coates and I can read James Baldwin and I can, you know, I, I can read all these books, but until I'm in relationship where that is animated, it doesn't cost me anything. It's still a life of my mind. And that is a disconnected, disembodied Christianity that has gotten us to a point of absolute bankruptcy, I think, where we're at today. Matt, it's so interesting because you've mentioned the challenge of like the mind-oriented world, right? Like you did the PhD, you did the academic route and you were like, no, that's not quite it. Like it's a tool, it's important, but it's not the destination of where I'm going. And I'm curious, you know, you, you're firmly based within a church Mm -hmm. context and a lot of the structures of the projects that you run are 501c3s, right? They apply for grants, they're in the nonprofit model. And in that world, you have to demonstrate impact through all sorts of data and you have to, right? Like there's all of those metrics that you have to hit. And yet those are not the metrics per se of why you're there. And sometimes the things that matter most are the most difficult to measure if you can measure them at all. And so I'm really curious 
as you're thinking about innovation and doing this work, crossing these boundaries of church culture and, and nonprofit culture, how do you think about knowing what's working? Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do you know what to invest more time and effort and resources into, even when sometimes maybe it doesn't make sense in that intellectual way? Yeah, yeah, that's really good. You know, I think, first of all, I mean, it, the things that I do don't make sense to me outside of the church, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I, I think that this is exactly what Wesleyan theology is about, is about innovating mm-hmm. into the world and animating this new sense of what it means to be human together, right? And that's at the core. I mean, it's like the Clapham sect in England, you know, with, mm-hmm. you know, with Wilberforce and all those folks that were like, hey, we should just transform society. How about that? Right. You know, and I don't know when it got to be, let's have a conference where all we do is worship and raise our hands. And that's what that's about. Mm-hmm. I'm like, geez, like how anemic have we reduced? And I think mm-hmm. that's why there's just this exit of folks that are like, hey, there's more happening out there that may not bear the name of Jesus, but the presence of Jesus is replete just mm-hmm. you know, all over it. Right. That I think that we have to in the church reclaim. So some of that for me is understanding that there's limitations within the structure of the church, the formation of the church. But 501c3s allow us to operate in a world kind of without some of the religious barriers that come with religious organizations. Right. And so we can do the, what Bonhoeffer calls the, the incognito of Christ, right? That like, what does educational reform have to do with the Holy Spirit? I would say like the whole friggin' thing, right? <laughs> I mean, there, there's got to be a different spirit that, that is, is present within education if we're going to do something different. And there's only, Paul's right, there's only one spirit that does that. So I think our work is then to stand in those places, even if we can't see where it's going, and trust the people that are there, you know? So Marlon Lazama, this guy that we formed Iconoclast with, I just trust the dude. I mean, I trust him because he has been, he was an immigrant that walked up from El Salvador when he was 14 years old. And he has a hunch about things and a sense about things that I just, I, I trust. And so it's not about, again, I think you're right. There's, I mean, I'm not anti-intellectual. I just think that it has to be right-sized and it has to fit within other giftings that the intellect can't bring, right? Or certain types mm-hmm. of intellectual privilege can't bring. And so like with, same with Cleve, best leader I've ever been around in my entire life in, in terms of just who he is as a person embodied. And I would follow that guy anywhere. Because I, I trust that he's going into the world and risking what he has. I'll risk it with him. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a coward. He's not a coward. As long as I can stay as close to him as I can, you know, maybe I'll be all right. I love that you say, you know, Mar- Marlon is a break dancer. He's this incredible poet. And you say, like, if he'd been something else, if he'd been a cook, we would be a culinary oh, school. Absolutely. Right? Like, <laughs> the, the way that you're led... That, that trust is real. That's yeah. what I'm trying to say is that it takes a confidence. I don't think you're a coward at all. I think it actually takes a huge amount of confidence to step into that kind of trust. And that, you know, I haven't spoken with Marlon, but I, I know it's mutual. No. Well, he's a dear, dear human being. 
and you're right. I mean, it, seriously, if you would have been an interior decorator, we would have been just on, you know, homes right now, just cranking stuff out. But because it doesn't matter, it it really doesn't. Part of the juice, I think, in improbable friendships is it's like that emerges out of of what you bring. It's the hip hop sampling. We bring things, and then. <laughs> something is innovated out of that space. It couldn't, if I had a design as a strategy and this is what we're going to do. And I just need a Brown person or he just needs a white person. That, that mm-hmm. then becomes like horrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. It a lot of things, but it's horrible. So I think there's something there to chase a little bit. Cause I think when we think about innovation or entrepreneurship, we think there's like a formula. And of course there's not, But there is something about assessing what's there and what you have and leaning into it or or trusting it. I don't know. Will you say something about? Yeah. Yeah. I think somebody asked Christian Wyman one time, where does a poem start for him? Hmm. I think it was Christian Wyman that he says it starts with a, it almost starts with a a note, a tone, a something. And he follows that. And so for me, it starts... You know, there's something like that I can't explain, but it starts with a, I can feel a vibe. I can feel something. And I just keep following. This is, I mean, I just follow the vibe. <laughs> <And so, laughs> it could be the movement of the Holy Spirit or whatever we want to call it, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if you want to put theological language on it, right? But I'm just to strip that away and say, what is it? Sure. I don't know. It? There's a sense in which I do, like when I met Marlon and he had this idea and his idea was like, fantastical, you know, and there was all the reasons in my mind why I don't think it would have worked in that construct, but I had to be curious. What do I know? I really don't know. And here's this guy that has like, can talk himself into any school in America without an education and transform it. Then like we've talked before, Lisa, that the name of God can be translated in the old Testament as something is happening. Right. Mm. And so if something's happening, I've got to get really curious mm. about that. Like, what's happening here? Yeah. No? Mm. Then it's not about how I understand it and explain it. It really is, how can I be faithful to this moment? And does this moment then mm. kind of spill into another moment? Can I be faithful to that moment? And so mm. I think in some ways, it's being in the, Richard Rohr talks about the naked now. It's having to be nakedly now, but also futurally oriented. Matt, there are so many ways in which you could fit into a really clear, fantastic kind of classic congregational ministerial role and be excellent at that. And yet you're, you're always looking, right? You're through, through those improbable friendships, you're always listening, you're always curious, you're always creating just, just next to the church building, as it were. Is there a moment, like, I don't know if you have a story where, where you felt some of the pressures of the institution of the church with some expectations of how to be or what to do and how either you acquiesced and moved with that or you had to say, no, and I'm going to do this thing and let me show you why you're part of that mm-hmm. too. Like, have there been those kind of moments for you? Oh, yeah, yeah both personally and professionally, right? In some ways, that has been a really core struggle of mine because in some ways I I want to be really secure. Yeah, don't we all? <laughs> yeah, right. But then you fall in love with, with Jesus and then there's like this this kind of deep sense of, well, well crap, I guess I, that's, I can't privilege security as what it means to be faithful, if I really do, right? And so in some ways, 
I think my journey has been a journey of my own trusting of myself. I think early on, I think I knew that I had gifts to be a senior pastor or something like that and thought, oh, that was the, that was what the answer, that was kind of the, the goal. But there's somewhere along the way, I had the opportunity to create this thing called Mercy Street, a church within a church. It's deeply radicalized me and formed me in really nutty ways. And the church both pushed back against that, but they're also super protective of it. And so it was this kind of negotiated space, you know, and I learned how to live in that interstitious space of uncomfortability so something else could grow. And Mm. I think even in the middle of that, I kept thinking, well, Am I supposed to be that person up there doing that? And it took me a long time Mm. to realize that, no, that's actually not what I'm called to do at all. Mm. I'm called to do these things. But it created so much turmoil inside of me for years because of both the institution saying, you you should be doing this. And me thinking, I should be doing that, you know? (laughs) And plus they pay a lot more than what you get paid as an associate. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I bought into the American dream of being an American pastor where, you know, it's left to right and up and you have a massive congregation and, you know, and, and I'm not, there's nothing wrong with that at all. And so every time I reached out for that, there would be something visceral inside of me that I now know was saying no. And it cost me a lot to get to the place where I could trust myself. And I went through a dark night of the soul where I had to come to terms with that, that it wasn't, Mm -hmm. I felt like God, in a sense, in this language, that God was not asking me, did I trust him but uh, or God, but did uh, I trust myself? And I had been taught in the form of Christianity that I was raised in never to trust myself. And so Mm -hmm. when you get to a critical juncture, what it means then to to either will I uh, do what other people are telling me I have to do or need to do when trusting yourself feels like failure, you know? And so partly that emerging out of that really dark time in my life, one of the things that I know emerged was this sense of, I know who I am. I know who Mm -hmm. I am for better, for worse. And so now being on staff of a church where there's this like amazing leader that I get to work with, like one of the best leaders I've ever been around. He needs to be doing exactly what he's doing. He's just so smooth and gifted and graced at it. And I look at him and I'm like, you're the man, you know? <laughs> I, and, you know? and I was like, if I was there, I would have been crushed like a tin can in the, under that. That was really lovely, Matt. Really. I just think you're naming, Matt, what so many innovators, entrepreneurs on the edges of the church have to face and and deal with. They have to get real with themselves and their calling, and they have to start to trust themselves and trust the voice of God that's within them. And I mean, that's real for for everyone called by God. But if you're going to work on the edges of the church, wow, that gravitational pull into the inherited models is so strong. So thank you for your beautiful witness and your courage. So Matt, I've got three quick fire questions for you. Not that they're smaller questions, but you just got to be more concise. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> we'll see how good your editing is. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking back to that young man, you know, maybe even that, that little boy all the way with those bell bottoms surrounding him 
and thinking of the incredible journey of ministry that you've had to this point where you are now, what do you wish you had known when you are starting out that you know now? I wish I would have known that it's all going to be okay. That Mm. no matter what unfolds, there's beauty in it. That I don't have to do it right. That fear does not mean that something's wrong. Mm. That faith doesn't mean assurance and security. Mm. That there are angels ahead uh, in the bodies of people that are just so different than the neighborhood I grew up in. And it's so much fun, you know? There's so much joy in it, you know, and I I think that's it, you know, that I'm not alone and that it's going to be okay. And that out of that okayness, out of that graced okayness, you can take deep risks, which is just another word for faith. That's right. What do you wish leaders in the church knew or understood? Mm -hmm. I wish in some ways that leaders would not privilege leadership so much. Mm. In some ways in the American church, we have fetishized it at a point to where we have made that to think the thing that will save us. And the thing that will save us is community and relationships. It's not leadership. So if we change our paradigm to say, really, it is about these kinds of friendships and communities that span boundaries. I'm not saying that leadership isn't important. We have just put our eggs in that basket for the last Mm -hmm. 20 years, and it has done nothing to um, change the trajectory and the abysmal failure that the American church is right now. So we don't mm-hmm. need no more um, conferences and books on leadership. We need to know how to build relationships at a level that actually cost us something and summons our life into a place in this world that is very different than the segregated ways that we've done it out of our own kind of theological and social constructs. So. Mm, that'll preach. <laughs> One of the things that this award is all about and which you and your work embody so beautifully is that Wesleyanism is bigger than just the Methodist church. And I want to ask you for you, what is at the heart of this Wesleyan tradition that you have given your life to? I mentioned the Clapham sect. Those folks were at their core Wesleyan, right? I mean, I just, I love the fact that William Wilberforce is reading letters from Wesley and Wesley's basically saying, go farther, go more, do more. And so there's a sense in which, in some ways, the world has always changed when a group of people get together and decide that they're going to live in a common bond with each other and face injustice in a way of mercy and love and dogged hope and laughter. That's why I think leadership can't get us out of this. Uh, It sure as hell can get us into it. It can't get us out of it. What we need is we need uh, relationships that are small batch, that are given to each other, that know each other, and that move into the world in ways that almost become, I mean, Maybe like a mustard seed. I don't know. (laughs) You know, that's there's a lot of power in those things. And I think what we've done is we've created kind of a grand weapon of mass distraction, talking about capacities of leadership in our church, all so that we don't actually have to form community with people that don't look like Mm -hmm. us, that aren't around, you know, that we don't have to move into Mm -hmm. these spaces. It doesn't cost me anything. 
All I have to do is develop more capacities and then I can change the world. No, actually, you need to go meet somebody in your community that's dying or that is in need or that has capacities that, you know, and you need to come alongside in solidarity and find out that you're the one that's dying and there's a need, you know, and that they are the ones with the capacities to heal the world and you come together and something happens. And that's the gospel. And that's the gospel <laughs> right there. So Matt, we want to, end our time with a blessing for you. So Matt, we give thanks to God for you, for your ability to shed layers of pretense and to draw out and cherish the real and the messy and the beautiful that's underneath. And, um, and you do that in yourself, but you also do it in the people around you. And it's an amazing gift, really. So we give thanks to God for you and we pray God's blessing on you and your family that you and Michelle, Miguel, Lucas, and Gabriel may experience powerful love that makes it possible to face each new challenge and more grace than you could have ever imagined was possible in the midst. And may the God of improbable friendships and second chances fill you with courage to surrender one more day and give you the assurance of a profound and abiding presence that you are not alone. By the grace of God, may it be so. Igniting Imagination is a production of the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. The beautiful music in our episode is from Mark Miller. For more information about Mark, visit his website at markamillermusic.com and find his music on YouTube. Make sure to view our show notes and website for more information about our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening. <laughs>